0: Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful Lord's Day. What a privilege to be together. Mary and I are thrilled to be here in Kingsburg once again, and uh, the fellowship of fellow believers, the communion of the saints that we know just amongst ourselves here, and and you have become friends. Uh, Mary and I, over the course of last year, have not only prayed for you as a congregation, we prayed for specific members of this church, one in particular who uh, was in need of that prayer, and it's just amazing as we're here together to see what the Lord has done and answering those prayers and to see what the Lord is doing through this church in this community. I mean, you are the refutation of all the church management experts on the planet. (laughs) Here you are, you know, steadfastly contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And you just love Christ. You do so winsomely. You preach the gospel. You do so faithfully. And uh, we're just encouraged every time we're here, and I'm so thankful for your pastor, Scott Artavanis. I just got to tell you, uh, across the, uh, the years of my life, uh, I, I guess I can have different milestones or markers, but one of them is seeing what God does through specific men that I've come to know as friends. And uh, we encourage one another in the faith and in the calling, and so thank you. Just, just being here and seeing what the Lord's doing here is such an encouragement to me, as, as was, by the way, seeing the hands raised about the briefing. So, thank you for listening. I had someone come up to me this morning and say, I, uh, I listen, but it aggravates me a lot. <laughs> and uh, I, <laughs> I fully get that. Imagine how it is to do it every day. Okay, you know. uh, I, I will admit that aggravation is a part of the energy behind, uh, behind this. But you see, this is the thing, I, I could not possibly do that. Um, Unless I could know that in the background, in the foreground, in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if Jesus Christ is Lord, then His people can talk about anything. We can face any challenge. We can think through everything that in God's sovereign timing our generation has to confront. We could do so based upon the inerrant, infallible, unchanging Word of God. And... Uh, I even appreciate the, uh, the little kid in the elevator. I was going up, I had, had someone with me. I was in conversation in an elevator, and uh, there was a little boy standing with his mom behind us. I really hadn't, hadn't noticed them the way you are in an elevator, but all of a sudden, I heard the little boy say, I think that's Mr. Briefing. <laughs> and that was, uh, that, was, that was really special, but I got to tell you what's more special than that, grandparents in the fellowship of joy that is known as grandparents. We've got two little grandsons, Benjamin and Henry. They're four and uh, about 20 months. And Benjamin's been talking now for a couple of years. And and it's just amazing what comes out of him. And so whenever he hears someone say, I'll see you again tomorrow, he just looks at him, I think, without even thinking about it, and goes, for the briefing. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) nothing... Nothing can make me happier. Uh, (laughs) Katie, by the way, our our daughter, Katie and Riley are the wonderful parents of these two little boys. And uh, the briefing can function in different ways. And so one day, Katie called me and said, just thanks, Dad. And I could tell there was something coming. She said, uh, thanks for the fact that... Benjamin and I just had to have a conversation about hell. I had done a major segment on hell and the modern repudiation of hell. The New York Times had just run an article. The New York Times did not care about heaven, but it wrote… It it, it ran this massive article attacking the biblical doctrine of hell, so I responded to it. And evidently, our preschool theologian picked up on it. And uh, so, anyway, it's just one of those things where she just tongue-in-cheek said, thanks a lot. It was an interesting conversation with… Benjamin about hell All kinds of interesting conversations among Christians. There's never a shortage of issues for us to think about. Never a never a, a, a deficit of, of questions that we have to answer. There's there, there there's never a moment when there is the existence in this age of an untroubled Christianity. In this world you will have trouble, Jesus said. That ought to be pretty comprehensive, right? I mean, Jesus says in the gospel of John to his own disciples, in this world you will have trouble. So how can we be surprised? And and amongst, in the midst of the trouble we face is the trouble of deviant doctrine, theological confusion, the corruption of Christian belief, the malformation of Christianity, even the establishment of false churches, the preaching of false gospels. And and we can think, well, here we are in the 21st century, I guess over, you know, 21 centuries of time and experience in the church that was inevitable, but it was inevitable in the first century. It was, there were false doctrines being taught. There were false gospels being preached in the first century. I want us to turn together to the book of Jude 3. That's right, it's, it's not chapter three, it's just three, Jude three, because Jude is just one chapter. It's a letter. The focus of our attention this morning is going to be Jude three, but I want us to begin by looking at the very beginning of the letter. Jude writes, beginning in verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Father, we pray that right now, even in this hour, even in the midst of of this confrontation with Scripture, even now as the Holy Spirit is applying this Word to the hearts of believers, Father, we pray that we will even right now be built up as a church and as individual believers, encouraged and called to be faithful to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I have to tell you that I find the opening of the book of Jude the most remarkable opening of any biblical book. We can remember where we were sometimes when certain thoughts came to us, and as I was reading through the Bible, I can still remember one time coming to the beginning of Jude and noticing how he addresses the church. He writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Think with me for a moment. Jude, that's his name, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Who is James? James is the apostle who became the great leader of the church in Jerusalem. Yes. And James, along with Peter, in the earliest period of the church, is one of the two most famous of the apostles. You have you have James as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who who is centrally used by God in order to establish that church right there in the city of David. But you'll notice that what he says in the beginning, even before he gets to James, his brother, is that he is Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Again, that's not just a name, that is a truth claim. Christ is not his name, Jesus is His name, for you shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. Jesus is His name, Christ is His title. Christ is a truth claim, the Messiah, the King who will reign forever on David's throne, the anointed one, the one promised, the one whom as we shall see shall save His people from their sin. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jude identifies himself here as a servant of Jesus Christ, and he is the brother of James. But who is the brother of James? By the same mother, Jesus. Jude, like James, is the half brother of Jesus. But he doesn't identify himself as the half-brother of Jesus. It's clear because he's the brother of James. He identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that incredible? He's not writing because of his familial relationship to Christ. He's writing because he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's a servant. He serves Jesus Christ. He's the brother of James. And notice, even as he identifies himself in such a powerful way, that just grabs our attention and says, this is something about the man. The Holy Spirit has inspired you to write this. And he wants us to know that he's the servant of Jesus Christ and he's the brother of James. But to whom is he writing? Look at the next phrase, to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Oh, how beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? He's talking about the church. And so, how does he describe the church? The church is made up of those who are the called. You can say, well, that's that's salvation. That's the doctrine of effectual calling right there. That's the fact that we are not those who first of all volunteered. We are those who were first and foremost called. We are the called, called in Christ, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This is just more than it appears at face value. This is not just an introduction. It's not just saying, yes, we're Christians here. Let's move on to the real stuff. Look at what he's saying. He's identifying his audience, those to whom he's writing this letter, as the Holy Spirit speaks through him, as those who are called... Who are those who are called? Those who are beloved in God the Father. Beloved. Who deserves to be beloved in God the Father? I mean, we we are those who are made in His image and sinned against Him. And and the, the wrath of God is rightly directed to and promised to and will be poured out upon sinners. How in the world can God the Father look to human beings as those who are beloved in God the Father? How could that be? It can only be explained because of what God has done for us in Christ. We're beloved in God the Father, and we are kept for Jesus Christ. We're a kept people. We're kept. Now, kept there has to mean two things, okay? Number one, it means we're not lost. We can't be lost. So this is the perseverance of the saints because we've been justified by faith, and prior to that, we were called. Our calling set into effect the entire order of salvation. And, and, and we are those who are united to Christ. We can never be severed from Christ. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. But then we're, we're kept. So we are kept in that. We're His possession, and He doesn't lose anything. But we're kept in another sense, which is temporal. We're kept for Jesus Christ for well eternity yes but the the horizon here is the fact we're kept for Jesus Christ for that great day in which the church of Christ shall be united with Christ and glorified by Christ and for Christ So there's that name again, Jesus Christ. He's writing to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And then he prays, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Sounds much like the Apostle Paul. This is the kind of apostolic greeting we're accustomed to. Grace and peace to you is Paul's customary way of putting it. Here Jude writes about mercy, peace, and love. And and so the distinction is important. Let's think about this for a moment. Grace and peace, we understand that. that. That's Paul's customary apostolic salutation. But Jude here says, may mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Mercy, mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is the graciousness of God towards those who deserve no graciousness. Even His grace is unmerited favor. Mercy is God's love demonstrated to us in that He loves us when we are unlovable. And you say, well, that's what God did for us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's right, and that's how we're saved. But how do we survive right now? It's because when God looks to us through Christ, He responds to us in mercy right now. So right now, in this very instant, and in every moment of our lives, throughout all eternity, we are in a steady state, constant need of mercy. Never forget that. Jude prays for the Christians to whom he's writing, which is the church throughout all the ages and all places. Mercy, peace, that's the peace of of Christ that passes all understanding and love be multiplied to you. That's his introduction. It's rich, rich rich in the, the lesson from Jude that we learned about how he identifies himself and his apostolic authority and his Servant role to Christ, grace and, and and love of God to us, and being described as those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. The gospel made clear for us in mercy, peace, and love. And then he writes in verse three Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We're going to concentrate on those last words, that last phrase. But notice in verse 3 how he addresses the church. Beloved, that, that is beloved in Christ. So it's a wonderful phrase. Uh, used to have a pastor who would address the church as beloved. It is such a sweet way of putting it. The, what does beloved mean? Be- be- beloved. It, mean, it means you love, yes, but it also means loved together. Old English, coming out of the Greek here, beloved Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So Jude tells us that he had an apostolic, as one chosen by God as, as a, an apostle, as sent out by Christ as an apostle, designated by Christ as an apostle. He, he had an urgency to write to the church about our common salvation. Now, there's a lot there, too. Just think about it. In other words, first of all, you have the hour, hour. notice that's, uh, that's a, a plural pronoun, our common salvation. Now, it doesn't mean salvation is common, not in the sense that common means just ordinary. It means common like extraordinary together. <laughs> it is the same salvation. It's the same gospel. It's Jesus Christ, the same Yesterday, today, and forever. It's our our common salvation. Jude says, I wanted to write to you about that. What did Jude want to write to us about our common salvation? We don't know. Because the Holy Spirit had a more urgent mission for Jude. Now... The writing to us about our common salvation is all throughout the New Testament. So there's nothing lacking in the Bible. That's going to be one of the major issues we're going to face. There's nothing lacking in the Bible. We are not lacking anything because Jude didn't write the letter he first set out to write. It's because the Holy Spirit would give us all of that. But what we needed through Jude was this letter, this one. I found it necessary. Necessary is an interesting word. In other words, this wasn't just a choice. Jude didn't say, you know, as the Holy Spirit was guiding me, I thought about several different things, and I went through kind of a strategic planning process to think about what messaging might be most important for this particular era. No, 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 no. He found it necessary. There's a compulsion here. There's a monomaniacal, absolutely singularly focused necessity here to write appealing to you. That's also sweet, isn't it? The Apostle Paul will speak this way, appealing to you. Uh, The Bible even describes Christ appealing to the church. This is an appeal we ought to hear. It's actually a command. There's never an appeal to do something that is elective. You ever notice that? It's kind of like when my parents appealed to me to obey them. It was never presented to me as a choice. It was, it was like appeal, being presented to you, obey or die, <laughs> you know. But we're going to start out with an appeal. Appeal appeal's a good place to start. We'll see where things go from there. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints… Here's what I want us to think about today. You just look at Jude 3. This is a very short verse, and we're actually going to concentrate on just the last phrase of a very short verse, because in this is an absolutely unmistakable, undelegatable, unescapable, inescapable, unavoidable, constant, non-changing challenge to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, command to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Sometimes in exposition, you take a chapter, or, and, and, and you go through an entire chapter in a message. And I did something like that the last time we were together, looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Sometimes you just take a verse, because as we think about the exposition of the Word of God, there are certain verses that we dare not pass by quickly. No verse should we pass by quickly, but there, there, there are some we actually have to camp out on for a while because there is danger in reading it too quickly without recognizing that there's an entire command of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all the ages until he comes that is given here. Jude found it necessary to write appealing to us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Every one of those words turns out to be crucial to contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. So let's follow through this together. What did Jude find so necessary? Of, of what is he making his appeal to us? To contend for the faith. Well, let's back up for a minute. Contend. Do you contend for much? It, it, it's not a word we use, you know, honey, how was, uh, how was work today? Well, I, I contended hard all day. It's a, it's a verb that we use sparingly these days, but we do understand the context. If someone's making an argument in court, they're contending for that argument. That's, that's, that's what they're doing. To contend for is to urge agreement with. It is to defend in itself, but more than anything else, it means, as rightly understood here, an eager presentation that is in the face of opposition, an, 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 an eager presentation to contend. Now, there are people who are sometimes described as contentious because there are people who just like to pick a fight. Jude was not someone who's out to pick a fight. He actually tells us, and this is what makes that phrase so important, he actually tells us that he intended to write about something else. He's not a contentious person. He's not seeking conflict, but he's not going to avoid it when he finds it. And the Holy Spirit has made clear to him the necessity of facing this conflict. The the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should never be contentious. The New Testament is clear about that, but always ready to contend for the faith. That's a really important balance, isn't it? A divisive person is a contentious person. But a church that will not contend turns out to be a false church. To contend for the faith faith. The, the faith. Let's think of the subject there for a moment. The, the faith. What is the faith? What is the noun in this case? Well, it's very important that we recognize that Christianity is not a mood. Christianity is not a feeling. It, it, we have feelings, and uh, we, God made us creatures of feeling, but Christianity is not a feeling. As a matter of fact, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, forever united to Christ, there are going to be moments in this life, in this age, in which you will not feel a Christian that you are. Not because you can hold yourself to Christ, but because Christ loses none of those given to Him. Kept for Jesus Christ. We don't trust our feelings. Our our feelings are powerful. I mean, they can sometimes almost seem to overpower us, but we're not We're not Christians because of our feelings. Christianity is not a mood. Christianity is not a disposition. Uh, Christianity comes with a worldview, but it's not primarily a worldview. Christianity is a faith, a faith. It's singular here. It's it's a specific set of beliefs in which we believe. Okay? So follow me here. When, When in the New Testament, the Christian faith is referred to just that way. It's a Christian faith or the faith. It, it means that it's a set of beliefs that we believe. So it's not just a set of beliefs as if it's set over here for our consideration. It's a set of beliefs that we believe. So those who are in Christ and are in the church, we are a part of the faith. It's, it's, it's a specific set of doctrines. It's a specific set of truth claims. That means that there is true Christianity, and anything that falls short of that true Christianity, or as we shall see, anything that adds to the New Testament and its revelation of the faith. They come up short, or they add to the New Testament, they are heretical false gospels. This is not to contend for any faith, or to contend for faith, okay, so had a strange afternoon in which I was uh, privileged to spend the better part of the afternoon with the Prince of Wales. I was not alone. I was with a group of some others chosen for the event, and uh, I will tell you, it's a, it's a, rare, it's a rare moment. Um, it's a particularly awkward moment for an Orthodox, that means evangelical Christian theologian. Uh, we were invited uh, to present an answer posed by the uh, Prince of Wales, and all of us around the table were given five to ten minutes to answer the question, what's gone wrong with the world, and is there any hope? Oh, thank you. (laughs) What's gone wrong with the world, and is there any hope? And uh, there wasn't much hope around that table, as a matter of fact, but nonetheless, I I answer. But in the background is… is an interview that was going through my mind the whole time in which the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, was interviewed by a journalist by the name of Jonathan Dimbleby. I'm an Anglophile. I love the British people, but there's no better English name than Jonathan Dimbleby. (laughs) And uh, he interviewed the Prince of Wales, and he was asking the Prince of Wales about the likelihood, which could be eschatological, frankly, of him ever becoming king. I mean, his mother's 93. He's already waited longer than anyone in the entire history of the British Empire to be king. She's not in any hurry for him to become king, nor am I. And he was asked about the coronation oath, the words used. And, and remember, this is an anointing. And in the history of the British monarchy, it is explicitly modeled on Zadok the priest from the Old Testament, even right down to the oil, and it takes place in Anyway, here's the thing. A part of what is said in that coronation oath is that the monarch of Britain takes on the responsibility being defender of the faith. Interesting little footnote here. I know you guys are just insanely interested in history. This is really interesting. This is really interesting. How did the phrase defender of the faith get assigned to the British monarch? Not perhaps the first responsibility that you see successfully pulled off in the history of Britain. Well, how how did the monarch, the king or queen of Great Britain, gain the title Defender of the Faith? It's because it was given by the pope to Henry VIII. Oh, that clarifies things massively. Um, This was Henry VIII when he was still married to his first wife and was still Catholic. He was the Catholic prince, as he was known, the Catholic king of England, and he actually wrote a book. A a, a writing that the Pope liked a whole lot. Guess what that writing was? It was a theological attack upon Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. That's what Henry VIII wrote, the King of England. And the Pope liked it so much, the Pope gave him a title the Pope declared himself able to give, which is Defender of the Faith. The Pope was very unhappy about doing that, in short order. But that requires a little knowledge of church history and five more wives for Henry VIII. But nonetheless, it's still there. But what's important is that in this interview with Jonathan Dimbleby, Prince Charles said that he was not going to take the title defender of the faith. Instead, he wanted to be defender of faith. The faith, he said, that is in all of us. Okay, so here's the thing. We don't believe in faith. We don't believe in faith in faith. That's the theology of Oprah. I mean that seriously. She keeps talking about having faith. You know, that's a person of faith. But the faith is not faith in Christ. It's just faith in faith. We don't believe in faith in faith. Jude did not believe in faith in faith. He doesn't believe in some generic faith in which you have the world divided between people of faith and people who have no faith. Jude is writing to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So, the faith is a set of definite doctrines and beliefs that we believe. So, it's, it's not just considered, presented for our consideration. These, this, these, are, these are the things we believe, and that explains why we are saved. But we're saved not just because we believe them. We are saved because before we believe them, they're true. And they're not just true, they're savingly true. But notice the definite article here, to contend for the faith. The Christian faith is singular. It's, It's singular. There aren't Christian faiths. There's just the Christian faith. Now, you say, well, okay, okay, but look across church history, look across, just drive around any neighborhood. You've got this church and that church, the church of this, the church of that. You've got Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians. They're dying off, but there's still some of their buildings out there. Uh, You've got Anglicans, and and, and you've got this and that. And and so, how can you say there is just one faith, the Christian faith? Because if it's Christ's church, it holds to this faith. If it's a part of the church that is beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, it is a faith. Jesus Christ did not say, upon this rock I will build my churches and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. That means that all true gospel churches are a part of one church. That when we are saved in Christ, when we are justified by faith, when we are united to Christ, we become a part of Christ's church. And that church is marked by one faith. Now, there are are different beliefs that we have, but here's the fact. God revealed one truth. The fact that there are disagreements among Christians is not a problem with the New Testament. It's a problem with our limited knowledge. And this is where we as evangelical Christians have to come back again and again to the fact that our only authority for faith and practice is the Bible, it's the inerrant and fallible Word of God. It's the, it's the only foundational authority that, to which we can turn. God loved us so much that He didn't leave us in darkness. He didn't leave us in silence. He loved us so much that He gave us His Word written that we might know Him. And the true church, wherever it's found, holds to this singular faith. It is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are called to contend for the faith. Very important. That was once for all delivered to the saints. So, let's imagine that the Holy Spirit had not given us through Jude those last words such that Jude 3 would simply end, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, period. Now, if we had that, then we would know that it's singular. It's a definite article. It's the. Not to contend for a faith. Not to contend for any faith. Not to contend for faith as some kind of generic reality. Not to contend certainly for faith in faith. We're not saved because of faith in faith. We are saved because of faith in Christ. And those who are obedient to him, those who are the saved, are those who obey all that he has commanded. It's the faith. But the sentence doesn't end there. The, The words that follow are really important for our faithfulness and our understanding. It is a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That same phrase is used of Christ himself, once for all. There aren't many Christs, there's one Christ. He didn't die many deaths, he died one death. There aren't many crosses, there's one cross. There are not many gospels, there's one gospel. There's a once for allness to the Christian faith That is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is not to come up with our own take or perspective on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I think sometimes an evangelical Bible study is the most dangerous place on the planet to be. Don't take that out of context, please. Don't tweet that. (laughs) Studying the Bible is exactly the right thing to do. Studying the the Word of God together is absolutely the right thing to do. But the wrong thing to do is to sit together and have someone say, okay, let's read this verse, okay? Okay. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, Jim, what does that verse mean to you? Save me. I love Jim, but I really don't care what Jim thinks this verse means. I care what the verse means. Too many evangelical Bible studies are really studying each other rather than studying the Word. Now, I actually do care what Jim thinks, but it's because I care about Jim. But Jim's not the authority in this, and what Jim thinks about it's not really determinative at all, except it may indicate a problem. No, it's, it's the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We, we, we don't sit around and say, what's your take on that? Our responsibility is, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, under the Lordship of Christ, under the authority of God's Word, to determine together what it means. And, and then that means, once we know what it is we believe, that's what we believe. And then when we understand what it means, then we understand together, that's what it means. And all God's people say amen. And then once we understand what it says, we understand what it means, then in every single text, there's a something we have to do. Now, sometimes what we have to do is, first of all, just praise God for giving us this revelation of himself, this dimension of 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 what it means to know Him, this understanding of the gospel. Sometimes it means obeying the text, means agreeing with the text, saying, yes, that is it, I I agree. God said it, I agree. Sometimes it means there's a specific action we have to undertake, a specific behavior that we have to, to obey and inculcate in our lives. No, this is a definite article, to contend for the Faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This once for all means we're not waiting for further revelation. Isn't that important to recognize? We're waiting for Christ, but we're not waiting for further revelation. We're not, in other words, there's not more information we need in this life that we're waiting for. The gospel is not the first installment or the latest chapter in, 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 in God's dealing with sinful humanity. The, the gospel, the faith, Christianity was once for all delivered to the saints. And you say, well, where's that once for all? I mean, for crying out loud, Jude, you're writing a letter. The once for all is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the once for all is the saving work of Christ. The once for all is the apostolic deposit of which Jude is now, by the sovereignty of God, writing a part once for all, what does that mean for us? It means 66 books, okay? 66 books. This means that the canon is closed. And you say, well, what in the words canon? Canon means set or rule. And it means that the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ recognizes these 66 books as the Bible. I had a pastor tell me not long ago about uh, a young man who was an attorney, absolutely secular, godless. But uh, someone shared the gospel with him, and he believed and repented of his sins and was saved. And uh, so he came to the pastor and said, what do I do next? And uh, the pastor said, well, walked him through acts of obedience, but he said, one thing you need to do is start reading the Word of God. And uh, so the young man, this attorney, is a type A personality, so he left the conversation with the pastor. He drove right to a bookstore. he walked in and he said, I'd like a Bible. And they took him to see the various Bibles that were there available. And he says, well, I I want the real one. And you can imagine that that befuddled Barnes & Noble. But uh, nonetheless, they said, well, you know, I I, I want the real one. And uh, so he grabbed one, and it said the Holy Bible. And he said, this must be the real one. Well, there's a sense in which that's true, right? Holy. This is God's Word. Well, thankfully, he grabbed a good one. But the point is, that's the right instinct. And, and, and the point is that if it actually is the Word of God, it's these 66 books. They're not, they're not accidentally gathered together by the church. The, the, they are what the church has recognized as the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're not waiting for 67, 68, 69, and onward. Here, here's a key of what it means to contend for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. is to recognize that anyone has new revelation doesn't. Now, there are always new insights to come from the Scripture, treasures old and new that come to us, but there's no new revelation. Now, let's get pointed here. One of the main avenues of heresy and false gospel entering into the church is someone who says, I got a new word from the Lord. No, you don't. In other words, if what you say agrees with Scripture, then it's not new. If it is new, it doesn't agree with Scripture, and you're out. So, what do you see when you're at a Marriott and you pull open the drawer? Well, you see a Gideon New Testament in every room in a Marriott hotel. What else do you see? The Book of Mormon. And what, what, what does the Book of Mormon say? Another testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, 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 what is the belief of Mormonism? It is that the church was lost from the time of the apostles until the 19th century when the faith was reestablished through a 17-year-old who apparently read a lot of masonry and the King James Bible and some other stuff. and Supposedly, the Mormon church says, through a mysterious process that included an angel and stones through which he saw called peep stones and golden plates, uh, there came the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. Guess what? There is not another testament of Jesus Christ. And and so, there's no bolder statement of whatever follows as heresy than another testament of Jesus Christ. There isn't another testament of Jesus Christ. And by the way, Mormonism in that sense was just picking up on the logic of Islam, which is the very same logic. The the logic of Islam is not that the Christians and the Jews know nothing, or that the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament, reveal nothing, but rather that that the perfection of what the Jews and the Christians, according to the Muslims, saw dimly is in the Holy Quran, as they call it. And so there you have a successor. This is, this is that which comes and fulfills or corrects, and in, in reality, both, whether it's the logic of Islam or the logic of, of Mormonism, say, the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't enough. They're not completely wrong but they're not enough. But but what Jude speaks of here is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so let that reside in your hearts. Once for all. We're not waiting for further revelation the church needs. We're not waiting for a third testament. And in the book of Jude, in this letter, we're actually told there isn't one. And there's never going to be one. Instead, It is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So, the once for all is very important. The faith, definite article, the faith, beliefs that we believe, specific beliefs revealed in Scripture that are not just a matter of our intellectual assent, but our eager embrace and our obedience, that that faith once for all delivered to the saints, delivered. That's really important. We didn't figure this out. It was delivered to us. As a boy, I, I loved National Geographic magazine. I love the whole idea of National Geographic magazine. I love the idea of travel. I love the idea of sharks and snakes. I love the idea of exotic peoples. I, I, I was given a National Geographic magazine by my paternal grandmother every year for my birthday, but I only received it in edited form from my mother. Some of you know immediately what I'm talking about. There are, there are a lot of pages missing. She left in all the sharks and snakes and all the rest. But, but one of the things I really, uh, I really enjoyed were the explorer stories. I, I loved reading about explorers. I was fascinated with it as a boy. Still am, for that matter. I mean, the spirit of adventure in which someone sets out. And, you, and it was astounding to me as a, like a, a, a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old boy thinking about the fact that they didn't even know what the world looked like. Uh, they weren't even sure what was out there. They weren't even sure how far anything was, and of course, in the early age of exploration, they weren't even they weren't even sure that there was any way to get home. They might be swallowed by sea monsters or fall off the edge of the earth. And, and look how much we learned by exploration. I mean, all you know, the Captain Cook or. You just go down. Christopher Columbus, of course, the most famous. Amerigo vespucci that's a name that you ought to have if you're an explorer, Amerigo Vespucci. If it weren't for an Amerigo Vespucci, we might be Columbia rather than America. And, and I love the idea of, of the, this quest to know the unknown, but you know what? That has nothing to do with Christianity at all. It's actually the worst metaphor you can imagine for Christianity. And in Romans chapter 11, we are told that God's ways are past finding out. He is inscrutable. We didn't figure things out. We would have, there's no exploration into God that is possible. He's past our reach. There is no Christian truth that we can say we have discovered. It's all revealed to us. It's all grace and mercy. The grace and mercy that... that. Here you have Jude praying for the church. The grace and mercy of God is seen in the fact we have the Bible. We haven't figured anything out. It's revealed to us. We didn't discover anything. We didn't go up to heaven. Heaven spoke to us. It's delivered. I love that. It's delivered. Have you ever thanked God for delivering the faith to us? Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's another illustration of grace and mercy. We didn't deserve it, but nonetheless, God delivered it to us once for all. But once for all, He delivered the faith to whom? To the saints. We talked about this earlier when we looked at the communion of saints. We're not talking here about beatified ones, we're talking about all those who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all space and time, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by grace, united to Christ, we we are among the saints, the holy ones, because God is holy, therefore we are holy, but we're not holy in ourselves, we're holy because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, we're the holy ones, we're the saints, the faith is delivered once for all to us. Now, that tells us something interesting. The faith belongs to the saints. But rightly understood, the faith is hated by the world. The great dividing line in humanity is between those who are the saints in Christ and all others. Romans chapter 1 helps to explain that. But the faith was delivered once for all to the saints, to all those who have ever believed in Christ, to those who right now believe in Christ and are saved, and to all those who will ever, until Jesus comes, believe. It is the faith that is delivered by the grace and mercy of the Father through Jesus Christ to us. One verse, just a few verses. But I want us to think about how it actually is written throughout the warp and woof of the New Testament. And just for the sake of time, I want us to look just at a little bit of geography in the Bible, a little bit of text in the Bible, in which all of this becomes very, very clear. Turn with me to First and Second Timothy, and we're just going to very quickly see how what we have in one verse in Jude is actually amplified and multiplied just in the space of a few chapters here, that Paul wrote to the church, first of all to Timothy. For instance, as you're looking at, at 1 Timothy, look at chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, and later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now there's specific false beliefs that are then taught listed here, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Well, the point is, look how quickly, and so this is in the first century, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the early church, and already he has to say that the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Did you get any of that? I mean, my goodness, this, how, how much clearer could this be? By the way, one of my favorite verses in Scripture that I think just is a, a beautiful encapsulation of the gospel that is often missed is verse 16, the last verse of chapter 3. Read this. Well, and as a matter of fact, let's look at verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then look at verse 16. It's just glorious. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Speaking of Christ, look at what it says. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. My goodness, in one verse. And then the immediate verse that follows is Paul saying, Now the Spirit expressly says, that in later times some will depart from the faith. That faith, what who would depart from that? Well, Paul says, liars whose consciences are seared, those who are devoted to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, etc. Okay, now, just follow on down with me. Look at what follows in chapter 4. This is Paul's apostolic exhortation to Timothy. Look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith, of the faith. There's that faith again. And the good doctrine, there's doctrine again, that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Notice the centrality of belief. Let's look at verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially, especially, that means particularly, in essence, those who believe. Command and teach these things. Notice again, th- these things. Teach these things, certain specific doctrines. And then notice the thing, the, the exhortation that closes. Keep Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Now, very quickly, just for the sake of time, just turn a page or two and look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Teach and urge these things. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So notice that again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then of course at the end of this first letter to Timothy, Notice something that you might not have seen before. He says in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. Notice, it doesn't say the good fight of faith. It's the good fight of the faith. And then look at verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit, the faith once for all delivered. It is a deposit, the Holy Spirit, has deposited the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're not looking for it. It's been delivered to us. We're not seeking to go find it. It's been delivered to us, revealed to us, given to us in God's Word. It is now a deposit that we are to guard. But notice, I said you might not have seen this before. Look at the end of 1 Timothy and look at the beginning of 1 Timothy. Look down for the sake of time. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. So this is the second letter to Timothy. The Holy Spirit is given to the church. As Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write to Timothy, you saw the end of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And then look at verse 13 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Follow the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. (laughs) You think Timothy got it? Paul begins his second letter where he ended his first letter. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. When we ordain a man to the ministry of the eldership, the teaching ministry of the church, This is what we better say. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, maintain the pattern of sound words. Beloved, I wanted to write to you concerning our common salvation. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let me tell you, all around us, there are people who are trying to subvert the Word of God. There are some people who do it overtly by saying, here's a New Testament. Here, 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 here's, here's what the Old Testament and the New Testament were pointing to. Or there are people who are saying, look, I know this is what the church has always believed, but we have this new information. We have a new theory of how the world came into existence. We have a new psychological understanding of humanity. We we, we have a new understanding of how human liberation and human good is going to come. We we have new information. So you're gonna have to change the Christian faith to meet the challenge of this new information. No, we have a pattern of sound words that the Holy Spirit revealed to the church because it's what Christ taught the apostles and it's what the apostles taught the church and we're to continue in the apostles doctrine we're to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints no the authority of God's word is subverted by those who say yes I know that's what it says but let me tell you what it means we're the people who say it means what it says and it says what it meant what it means every doctrine of the Christian faith is under attack and that's not new And and that's why Jude felt the urgency as the Holy Spirit led Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James, to write these words to the church. We have before us the challenge of the fact that in the first century, people were looking for all kinds of saviors. They were looking for a revolutionary Savior who would bring about political liberation. They were looking for a therapeutic Savior who would help people to reconnect with uh, their inner selves and be whole. Now they wouldn't have used that language in the first century, but notice how they use it now. The therapeutic gospel is just all around us, people who basically want to be at peace with themselves, but we're the people who know you'll never be at peace with yourself until you're at first at peace with God. And the political liberation is what people were looking for. Even the disciples are sometimes confused when they said, even to Jesus, is the hour now come when you will establish the kingdom? And Jesus said, no, you're going to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You... Ours is not a message of political revolution. The gospel is more powerful than that. Every single doctrine is under The, the doctrine of justification by faith alone... <laughs> It's not just a fight in the 16th century. It's a fight to right now because what people want to be told is that they can do something to contribute to their salvation. There's nothing we can do. What did we we just sing? Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Period. So, here we are. In the 21st century, facing the very same challenge that the apostles told the church it was facing already in the first century. And until Jesus comes, it's going to be the perpetual responsibility of the church. We're going to contend with false doctrine. We're going to be confronted with even claims of a doctrinalist Christianity, which is an oxymoron. No such thing exists. But we know that salvation comes only in Christ. And we know that the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ is a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But I want to end with what you might not have thought of as Jude's greatest concern. Our greatest concern is the glory of God. And a part of the glory of God that is demonstrated to us is the goodness and mercy of God. And the human response to the reality of the one true and living God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent is gratitude. So here's the thing. This is where we must end. The faith once for all delivered to the saints is the faith for which we are to contend, but never with gritted teeth, but always with a grateful heart. Just think about that. What does it mean that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him might not perish but have everlasting life? How much does God love us That he loves us so much that he didn't leave us wondering what Christianity is, but he gave us the Bible. How much did God love us that he tells us up front the challenges we're going to face? And then invites us to contend for the faith which he once for all delivered to his saints. Who wouldn't want a place in this battle?